Good afternoon, everybody. This is Greg Lois, and thanks for joining us today. We're going to talk about how not to defend a wage reconstruction case in New Jersey. Uh, this is going to be a lot of fun for me. Actually, I think I might be changing up the format for all future webinars uh, to make them what not to do, because it might be more fun than talking about uh, the nuts and bolts and basics. Uh, we're going to talk about how to defend a wage reconstruction case in New Jersey. And what spurred this for me is an absolutely mind-bogglingly terrible decision uh, that was recently reported by the appellate division. So we're going to have a little bit of fun today. Uh, now, we're also going to do uh, some of the basics. We're going to talk a little bit about COVID-19, just because uh, it's the number one biggest topic. I'm going to spend just about a minute telling you the latest information you need to know about it. Um, and then we're going to dive into what is wage reconstruction? Why do we care about this? Uh, how do we defend wage reconstruction cases? And we're going to use a really interesting case that just came out called Calero versus Target uh, as our sort of model. Now, in today's handouts is a copy of the appellate decision in Calero versus Target, as well as copies of some statutory law. So you should have section 27 and section 37. Now, I'm not going to bore you. We're not going to read too much of that stuff, but I just want you to have it so you can reflect on it and maybe look back on it. Uh, this is a totally live presentation, so please ask me questions. It makes it so much more fun. I'm happy to answer questions about cases you're currently defending or ideas about strategies. Of course, don't tell me too much uh, so that I can give you sort of general advice. I will never say your first and last name, just your first name, so you know I'm answering your question, and then I'll dive into answering questions about these topics, or really any topic in New Jersey workers' compensation law. All right, so let's begin with a very brief COVID-19 update. Uh, first of all, uh, not a ton has changed in New York or New Jersey or Longshore. Uh, none of the states have passed any presumptions that apply to essential workers. Uh, both New York and New Jersey currently have a presumption in place for first responders. In New Jersey, first responders are entitled to testing or diagnostic testing to determine if they have an infectious disease. In New York, first responders, and that is very clearly defined uh, in the regulations and case law, uh, are entitled to a presumption of compensability if there's been any specific direct or traumatic incident. And again, we're talking about a presumption to compensability, but for the vast majority of employees, uh, they are not entitled to any presumption in New York, New Jersey, or Longshore. Uh, we've got a lot of materials on our website about coronavirus, uh, but I know uh, reading law firm websites is boring. So please feel free to just give me a call or shoot me an email. And we are dealing with uh, COVID-19 claims now at scale. We've got death claims pending in New Jersey, death claims pending in New York, uh, a large number of just infection claims pending amongst our litigation teams. I uh, seem to have some pretty good experience and we can share with you some practical advice for how we're defending these cases. In general, uh, both states, our standard practice is to dispute and challenge these cases. And that is because the burden continues to fall to the claimant or petitioner in most cases to prove a specific traumatic exposure, merely coming forward and saying, uh, everybody in my workplace is sick, therefore I'm entitled to compensation. That's not going to be enough. Uh, that's not going to meet the standard and those cases are not going to be found compensable. I'm also happy to share with you that two weeks ago I did try a case uh, in Staten Island on COVID-19, in that case, the judge found that a, even a positive RNA test and a positive uh, immunologic response test is just not enough to establish causal relationship to the employment. Sure, it's prima facie evidence that you had coronavirus, and we're very sorry for that, 
but there's absolutely nothing linking it to any one specific employment event or exposure. There's nothing distinct or peculiar about any employment. And so uh, we've been successful now uh, in New York where we've been able to actually try and get hearings on these cases uh, and getting uh, these cases disputed and keeping them disputed. Now, New Jersey is a different story, and that's really because New Jersey has a uh, no hearings, no court going on. Uh, the courts have been closed in New Jersey since March. Uh, every couple of weeks, the Workers' Compensation Court, the chief judge, has issued a new order saying, we're going to reopen courts and they'll give a new future date. Uh, so far, every single future time they've done that, they've just extended the court closures uh, and the courts continue to be closed and it's now indefinite when they will reopen. Now, judges are, uh, to some extent, still hearing lists and will still put through settlements. However, uh, you should expect absolutely uh, most substantive or dispositive motions are not going to be moved forward. Petitioners are not coming to court. Everything's being done by way of telephone conference. And to make it extra confusing and waste everybody's time, effort, blood, and treasure, every single judge is coming up with their own court rules for how they're going to deal with their case lists and pre-hearing conferences uh, throughout the entire state. Uh, our attorneys, uh, my two partners, Joe and Karen, are on top of all of that. Uh, their associates are also still handling all of our cases, and we're trying to set up conference calls and settlement conferences with our adversaries. It's very difficult. Uh, many of our opposing counsel have either laid off or reduced hours or reduced staff. So trying to move cases forward, we're still trying, uh, but we're not getting much help right now from the courts. Um, so that's the status of what's going on with COVID-19. We have a lot more information on our website, but please feel free to call me if you have any questions or concerns about a specific COVID-19 case that you're handling. All right, let's move on to today's topic, and let's. this is going to be fun. I had so much fun putting this presentation together. You think uh, something like wage reconstruction, which is so esoteric and abstract, it actually didn't even make it into the uh, <laughs> litigation handbook that I've written uh, for LexisNexis. There's a couple pages in, in my handbook, which I'm hoping that everybody has, but let's talk briefly about what wage reconstruction is and when it is appropriate and not appropriate and when we should be fighting wage reconstruction. So wage reconstruction uh, has been read into the statute. If you Google the word wage reconstruction in the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Act, you'll find that it occurs nowhere in the statute. But over the years, case law has developed to say that uh, reconstruction of wages from a part-time worker all the way up to a full-time worker can be done and is appropriate when there's a permanent partial disability. So what are we talking about here? Uh, the courts have found that wage reconstruction, where we kind of just make up a wage for someone who doesn't work full-time and we pretend they're a full-time worker, so that we can give them the benefit of, the, of a better compensation rate or benefit for their permanent disability uh, uh, residual disability injuries uh, and lack of recovery. And really, we're doing this uh, to be fair, okay? And we can all imagine circumstances where somebody works part-time, and this is how the case law has developed, uh, where there's been two main factors. First, the person is a less than full-time worker, so they're a part-time worker. Now, the statute does not define what a full-time worker is, nor is that defined anywhere, but, so what the statute says is anybody who works less than the customary number of hours in that type of work. So if most people in the employment are working 40 hours, really it's a 40 hour work week would be the normal work week. And this person is just a part-time worker if they work something less than that on a regular basis, okay? So the first question we ask as to whether reconstruction should apply and we should give this person an artificially higher wage is were they actually working less hours than the other people in the employment? 
And now there are many employments which are only part-time or they're only gonna be a couple hours a week. And if there's nobody in that employment who's working at full-time, well, guess what? It's a, it's a part-time position. There is no full-time. We wouldn't even consider wage reconstruction. And what about people uh, who are choosing to do part-time work? So we have a normal 40-hour week, but they're choosing to work 10 hours a week, and they've done that consistently for 10 years. Yes, those are the types of people who could argue, you know what, my wage should be reconstructed uh, to a full average weekly wage because there are people here working 40 hours a week, and for whatever reason, I work less than that. So they meet that first part of the test. Now, the second part of the test is that there has been an impact somewhere on their future earnings. And I want to be very clear about that. The law specifically, uh, as it's come out in the case law, says there has to be some sort of impairment of their future earnings ability. Not current, but future earnings ability. And we get there through some twists and turns because, again, this is nowhere in the statute, but there is case law. And I'll give you uh, an example where wage reconstruction does not apply. Okay, So uh, in the case of Katsouris, this is the most famous case case is now uh, 20 years old, uh, we have a part-time newspaper delivery person. Okay, I'm not going to say delivery man or newsboy because that would be sexist. And I'll, you'll see why that joke is going to pay off in a couple slides from now. Uh, so this is a newspaper delivery person who's working three hours a day, seven days a week delivering newspapers. She also has a full-time job. And in that full-time job, she works as a secretary and she works a normal 40-hour work week. So she's injured doing the newspaper job and she brings a whole litany of complaints and injuries that she alleges uh, and says, now I'm entitled to wage reconstruction, which would really increase the settlement that she was going to obtain for the uh, injuries she sustained while working as a newspaper delivery person. Well, the defense in that case said, wait a second. Yeah, she meets the first part of the test. She's only working 21 hours a week as a newspaper delivery person. So it's less than the normal 40-hour work week for people who work in that employment. But, judge, she can't satisfy the second part of this test. And the second part of this test is it has to somehow impair her future earnings ability. And, judge, there's been no impairment because she's lost no time or she's back to working as a secretary her full 40-hour week. And so in that case, the judge of compensation uh, uh, was affirmed in saying, no, wage reconstruction does not apply. Right, because you don't meet both parts of the test. Okay, so wage compens uh, reconstruction is appropriate in certain types of cases. Those cases uh, are where the employee is working less than full time, uh, where the injury diminishes or impairs their future earnings potential. Now, I'm going to give you a new case, a different case. This case is called Torres, and this case is also uh, a newspaper delivery person. In this case, this case Torres comes from I think 1973. And what's interesting in this tour is, first of all, Torres is a minor, and in, throughout the record, he's called a newsboy. Okay, again, <laughs> uh, they've gendered him, uh, but uh, he was a newsboy. We'll call him a news delivery person. He's a minor. He's working part time. He's only working a few hours a day, and he's working seven days a week making newspaper deliveries. And he's able to show some meager earnings, and it's not that much. Uh, and he comes forward to the court, and he says, "But yet, yeah, judge, I got very disabled in this in this accident. Fifteen percent loss of use of my arm." Uh, judge, and this is going to impair my ability to get a regular job. I'm a minor right now, by the way. Uh, this was my part-time job I did while I'm at school, and now I'm not going to be able to get a regular job or work as a laborer or do other things because of this impairment. Well, in that case, I said, you know what, you, you satisfy both parts of the test. So test number one is, uh, do other people work full-time? Is this a less than full-time employment? Yes. Step two, is this going to impair your future earnings? Well, the judge says, it will, 
because you've sustained a significant injury uh, to your arm, you've re recovered here in workers' compensation court, and this is going to probably impair your future or diminish your future earning capacity. And so for those reasons, that's a that's a very similar case to Ketsoris with the difference of this claim it could show my future earnings are going to be diminished. All right, so keep those two ideas in your head. Now, when should you challenge wage reconstruction? Well, pretty much all the time. It's pretty rare that we would ever stipulate to wage reconstruction. It's almost per se error to do so. But first, it never applies in the case of temporary total disability. So we're never talking about temporary disability. And the reason for that is, remember, for those really low wage earners, those people who work eight hours a week or 10 hours a week or 20 hours a week, and they just don't make that much money, remember, they're going to be entitled to the minimum under our statute. And right now in 2020, the minimum is $252 a week. And that's going to, again, go up next year, right? So even if you only made $200 a week under our statute, you'd be entitled to our statutory minimum. So you're in great shape. Okay. Uh, next, you should always challenge wage reconstruction if the person's back to some kind of full-time employment somewhere else. Uh, they're back to full-time employment. You're saying, Judge, what's the impact? They, they're able to do full-time now. They're not uh, uh, had to stop or or diminish their earning capacity. Um, now, the other thing I would also suggest is, and particularly in a case where the exposure could be quite large, use of a labor market expert and essentially saying, Judge, this person's claiming that their injuries are keeping them from future full-time employment or future wage earning. But Judge, we were able to go out and find six jobs for this person that could accommodate their restrictions and would pay them full-time earnings. So there could be circumstances where you'd actually want to get a labor market expert to come in and, and, and really educate the judge and say, look, uh, just because they don't have a job in the same industry or doing the same job and they can't do that full-time, well, here's six other jobs they could do, or here's some other accommodated work they could find. Okay, So I think that's uh, the best practices for how you should defend wage reconstruction. Uh, let's also remember that wage reconstruction in general is something that could be compromised or compromised, excuse me, or negotiated. Uh, so really generally, you're not going to stipulate to wage reconstruction. We probably need to take testimony. We may need to challenge that testimony with uh, labor market uh, testimony and really push back because this could significantly increase an award. All right, that's enough uh, background. Well, let's talk for a few minutes about this case that just came out, which just blew my mind. And I immediately said, OMG, I absolutely have to do uh, some kind of podcast or webinar on this case because it's like the example of what not to do with your life if you're a defense attorney. Something went so drastically wrong here. It just shocks the conscience. Uh, okay, so let's talk about this case, Calero versus Target. And this is a wage reconstruction case. It was decided June 10, uh, 2020. Uh, the case that it arises from comes back from a 2016 decision and a 2018 reopener. So I'm going to walk us through a little bit of the facts, the important facts about the decision in Calero. And then I'm going to talk about where it went so drastically and dramatically wrong. And then I'm going to talk about the botched effort to sort of fix it by the appellate division, in the appellate division arguments by the defense, by the respondent, and the ultimate result, which is a little bit scary for all of us. So first, uh, Calero was an employee of Target. Case is accepted or established. Uh, I don't know. There's no information in the appellate decision about the underlying injuries, uh, the types of medical care, the amount of time lost from work. All we know is that the parties settled the case in August of 2016 uh, for 25% of permanent partial disability. Now, uh, let's remember that New Jersey's permanent partial disability is uh, on a scale. It's not even linear scale. The more disability you go, the awards start to dramatically get a lot higher. 
So 25% permanent partial disability, this is not a huge, dramatic, out of the ordinary, peculiar award. It's a pretty run of the mill award. I, again, we don't know exactly what the injuries were in the case, but 25 weeks of permanent partial disability under the New Jersey statute uh, uh, allows the claimant to get a benefit uh, weekly uh, for 150 weeks. So this, her award should have been for 150 weeks of compensation. Now, we know that on that order approving settlement, because this was an approved settlement between the parties that a judge of compensation signed off on. At that time, they stipulated that her average weekly wage was $276.17 per week, which gave rise to a permanency rate of 100, maximum permanency rate of $193.32 per week. We also know that her hourly wage, uh, which there's information in the record, was $11.50. So we also know she was a less than full-time employee. Uh, and in fact, it probably worked about 20 or so hours a week, it appears, to get to that average weekly wage. Um, she accepts that settlement and goes on her merry way, takes the money. Then she goes and gets a new attorney. Uh, so this is a pretty rare thing to have happen. Usually we see the same petitioner stay with their same attorney who got them money. Something strange happened here. She went out and got a new attorney. It seems like that new attorney said to her, uh, you should have gotten more money. Uh, we should have, you, you, your counsel should have argued for a wage reconstruction. And so they do something interesting, which is they file a reopener. Now, a reopener is a modification of a prior order or award. And I put the uh, case law or the statute in there in today's handout materials for section 27, which uh, controls when anyone can file a reopener. Interestingly, both the defense or the claimant can file a reopener in New Jersey, and all that's required is a material change in condition. So we can imagine a situation where uh, a year after they accept their award for total disability, we learn that the uh, claimant is now competing in the 2021 Tokyo Olympics and is perfect and back in great shape. And we say, wait a second, why are we still paying this total disability award? Let's file a reopener. So the defense can do this. More typically, and I'm again, 99 times out of 100, that reopener is claimed by the petitioner. And what the petitioner has to show is a material increase in their restrictions. And if they can show a material increase uh, or a change in their circumstances, uh, which means that their original injury is somehow more disabling, they're entitled to more compensation. Now, what really happens in New Jersey most of the time when a claimant files a reopener is we resolve the case by way of lump sum dismissal by way of a section 20. And it's really because the burden of proof falls to the petitioner to show that their condition has materially worsened and they're rarely able to do that. In this case, they filed a reopener, but they filed a reopener to say, judge, my wage was not correctly computed at the time of that original settlement two years ago. Uh, and now judge, I'm entitled to more money because my wage should have been $460 a week. We should have taken that $11.50 I was earning and multiply it by 40 hours a week, which gets to $460. And judge, that's what my award should have been based on. Essentially, uh, they're trying to double the award because the uh, wage basis for the award would have doubled. All right, so this is a, something significant. Um, I don't have the exact numbers because it's not found in the appellate division decision, but the difference in these two demands or from the original settlement to what's being demanded in the reopener is about $30,000. Uh, in difference. So here's a claimant who's accepted their award, got paid 
Two years later, comes back, you know what? The basis for calculating that award was wrong, even though I agreed to it and signed off on it, but now I want double. And does this by way of a reopener application. Just says, okay, I'm gonna listen to it. And the claimant comes in. Claimant comes in and testifies. And she testifies basically to just bald assertions. So if you go into the, um, uh, into the printout that I've sent everyone or I included, we're on the second page, we're in the fourth paragraph down. And she says, uh, I considered myself a full-time employee, but before the accident, my hours varied. She says sometimes she worked more than 40 hours, but other times she barely worked more than 20 hours. She attributed fluctuations in her filling in for other employees when they could not appear for work as scheduled. She confirmed that most of the time when she worked, it was more than 40 hours. In response to further questioning, she confirmed that she was always available at least to work 40 hours a week. So when I read this and I say to myself, well, that's just her bald assertions. Now, two years later, she's claiming, um, yeah, many times I work less than 20 hours or around 20 hours, but sometimes 40, but I would fill in for other people. And, and then, by the way, judge, I was at least available to work for 40 hours. I don't, that's not the standard. So that's kind of insane. What happens next is actually even more insane. Uh, it, the defense offers absolutely no challenge to any of these proofs. So this to me is a very simple uh, cross-examination of the claimant. I mean, here's best practices, I think. Uh, you cross-examine the claimant and you simply say, okay, I have all your wage statements here. Let's go through week by week. And you just go through and you establish why she's not entitled to wage reconstruction because she, uh, she had average weekly wages or earnings of X, Y, Z. And then uh, the second part of that, right, the, the second part of the question is that somehow her current loss of wages would be impaired or was somehow diminished by her injuries. So it's unclear from her testimony if she even is a part-time worker. She's claiming she's 40 hours. Who knows? There's nothing it seems to refute that. But then the next step here would also be, uh, okay, well, now you claim you can't work 40 hours. Um, your disability that you settled by way of order approving settlement is only 25%, which is really a minor overall disability. That's not huge. We're not talking about somebody with a 50 plus percentage of disability. Again, our, uh, our, our schedule of disabilities in New Jersey uh, goes up in a nonlinear way. That as you keep going up, uh, again, at 33%, for example, there's a huge bump in the dollar benefits. And so really, we're not looking at a, made, a, a huge case here. And again, we don't know the exact underlying contours of the medical, but it doesn't seem that dramatic to me. Anyway, the, the judge then makes a decision based on uncontroverted evidence and says, you know what? You're entitled to reconstruction just based on what you've told me today and doubles the award. Uh, at that point, in your defense, you should be doing a motion to reconsider. You're screaming, yelling, pounding your hand on the table. Uh, I don't know if that was done. I don't know what arguments were made. Uh, certainly some arguments were missed, and we'll get to that in a second. But what they do do, which is correct, is they then file an appeal. So the appeal is then filed uh, saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, this case was not right for reconstruction, and we should not have done that. The judge was wrong. So the first thing that the, the uh, defense argues in the appeal, and I think this was correct, and they should have done this, is they argued Section 27 should not apply, that this case should not have proceeded by way of a reopener. And their argument comes basically from the statute itself. The statute says a reopener is appropriate when there's been a material change in condition, when the person's condition has worsened so much that their disability has increased. That's when you reopen a case. 
generally don't reopen a case two years later to say, oh, by the way, I'd like to have the wage reconstructed. Okay, that's that's something that we would consider to be subject to the compromise of the original settlement. It's the very terms of the settlement. I mean, if you're a defense counsel or plaintiff's counsel and you're settling cases, but you're not really 100% sure on what the wage is, you've gone really way off in the woods. I mean, what's the most, what's the thing that drives the entire exposure in a case from the defense point of view? The person's average weekly wage. How is the claimant's attorney going to get their fee? It's all going to be based on the size of the award, which is going to be mainly based on the average weekly wage plus the degree of medical impairment. There's not some other third thing we look to. So, you know, that's something crazy to come back two years later and go, oh, by the way, the entire basis of this settlement that I voluntarily entered into, that I got on the record and stood in front of the judge and signed my name to and said, yes, I understand this is voluntary. This entire award is subject to something I, I really didn't like and now I want to redo. And so I do think that that's a good argument. You should have raised Section 27 and said, Judge, this is not appropriate for a reopener. This is really an appeal. Or at best, Judge, this is a let's undo the order because it's based on fraud, misconcealment, or some kind of mistake, or some kind of mistake of the parties, something that somebody was misled. But Judge, that's not what happened here. The appellate division says, great argument, but you didn't raise it below, so we're not going to get to it. All right, so that's the example of defense counsel's asleep at the switch in the trial. It doesn't raise these legal defenses that they have, which again, I think are quite powerful and quite could carry the day. Not raised below, the appellate division says, sorry, you didn't say it down below. Uh, now you've lost your opportunity to bring that defense uh, here in the appellate division. Yikes. Okay, next. The defense argues in their oral argument, and sorry, not their oral, their written argument, that the trial below was unfair and that the judge only considered uh, I guess the opinion of the claimant and which was just based on her statements. Again, there's no reference in the record to anything else being submitted, not really any challenge to the claimant's burden, uh, no proof seduced, doesn't look like there were any witnesses brought on behalf of the employer. And now in the appellate argument, the employer says, uh, that's not fair, we shouldn't have done that. Well, yeah, answer, you shouldn't have done that. You should have brought some proofs when you go to court and someone's going to testify against you. I mean, first, you got to have a good cross-examination put together at a minimum. And the second thing is there should have been some proofs seduced. And those proofs would have been things like, uh, why aren't you working full-time today? Is it really this disability? Uh, do we have some new medical or something about her impairment? What's special about these injuries that keep her from being able to work full-time? I'm very surprised to learn that somebody with a 25% permanent partial disability in New Jersey, which, by the way, there's no such thing as a zero in New Jersey. Everything starts out a lot higher than a zero. I'm really surprised that that would be something keeping it. And then how about just some basic proofs, like just the employer coming in and saying, well, there's nothing keeping her from working for us full time, right? She could. Uh, or if that's not going to work out and maybe they can't accommodate, maybe there isn't a position. Maybe she's been separated from the employment, so we don't know what she's been up to. Let's do some arguments about a labor market survey at the least and maybe some job placement help. Uh, again, you're looking at a settlement here that's going to about to double on you. It's probably worth it to go out and spend a few thousand dollars and get a consultant or a vendor to try to see what kind of positions this person could fill in the general marketplace. So they made this argument, hey, judge, the whole trial wasn't fair because we didn't make any arguments. And the appellate division just smacks that one down and says, no way. Uh, if you guys don't do anything uh, in the hearing below, then when you appeal, you don't get a chance to get a do over. OK, so uh, unfortunately, uh, that didn't work out for them either. All right. Remember, the proofs required by the claimant in showing reconstruction are two things. One, uh, I was working less than 40 hours a week. Okay, maybe she'll be able to show that. It's not even clear for me from the record she can show that. 
But then two, really, but for this incident, I would have uh, no impact on my future earnings. Well, we don't know that. That simply wasn't explored and that defense was sort of thrown away. There's one other thing that's really absurd and kind of bad about this result. Uh, it, the appellate division said, you know, even if you didn't file a reopener, we probably had the right and opportunity to review the, the workers' compensation law judge had the right to review their own order under uh, uh, civil procedure rule 4 colon 50, which basically says that a court can review its own order to correct any errors uh, or where there's been some kind of concealment or some kind of uh, parties being misled. Uh, and, you know, that's a really scary thing for the appellate division to stick into this decision uh, because it really means that there's not a lot of order finality in New Jersey. If any time you enter into a settlement, a couple of years later, the claimant can say, yeah, you know what? Actually, those basic things that we all stipulated to in the settlement, I don't like them. Let's redo this again. That shouldn't really be the basis for the court to come back and reopen these old orders that we think have been final. And particularly when it comes in through a back door, in this case, where they file a reopener, uh, under Section 27, saying we need to modify this because there's been essentially uh, we've learned of a change in circumstance where we're going to argue something we never argued before. Again, I think at that moment, that's when we as defense or representing employers need to really step up and get aggressive about getting rid of these kinds of claims that really should have been resolved in 2016 when that original order was put through and then put to bed. Uh, so this is a really a scary decision in terms of the can of worms that can open up in regards to order finality and settlement finality in New Jersey. One good thing about New Jersey is, you know, cases do close, usually with an order approving settlement, and then after a reopener is filed by way of a section 20 lump sum dismissal. So again, there's some really negative takeaways from this case. And it's really not just my intention to beat up on the uh, defense attorneys or the way this case went in. It's really my intention to say, but what can we learn from it? And I think the next time uh, a wage reconstruction case or someone demands wage reconstruction, says, I'm, I'm entitled to, to XYZ different wage than I ever earned when I was working, I think everybody watching this webinar or listening to this podcast uh, will say to themselves, wait, full stop, uh, we got to look into this. These, are, these, these cases should be defended and usually defended quite strenuously. All right, uh, that's what I have prepared. I had a lot of fun uh, putting together today's presentation. I've now talked for 30 minutes because I was so excited about it. And I know this seems like super nerdy and very abstract area of law, but it really touches a lot of different things. And so for me, this was a lot of fun to put together and I hope it was fun for you to listen to. So I'm hoping there's some questions about something in here. Please people answer me some questions so I can I can keep talking because I had a lot of fun putting this together and uh, I thought it was a fun topic. Um, all right, I don't see any in here, so I'm getting a little sad, but that's okay. Uh, maybe you don't have a lot of wage reconstruction cases uh, on your desk. All right, next month, please join us for our regular webinar. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, medical benefits and uh, how to defend motions for med and temp next month, so please join me for that. Ignore what's on the screen. Uh, right now, it's it's got the wrong date on it. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, motions for med and temp. I hope everybody has a great day. I hope everybody's happy and healthy. Uh, please feel free to reach out to me with any questions you have or comments. Uh, email me, text me. Uh, I'll see you next time. All right, everybody. Have a great week.